Welcome to the Chip Warriors podcast, celebrating America's semiconductor pioneers, their stories, their voices. The technology they invented in the second half of the 20th century has given the United States a secret weapon in the Cold War of the 21st century. I'm Craig Addison, the writer and producer of the Chip Warriors podcast series. This is a special episode called the Taiwan Chip Warriors. And my guest today is Alan Patterson, a longtime Taiwan resident, journalist, author, a former colleague, and also a good friend. So welcome, Alan. Thank you, Craig. My first trip to Taiwan was in 1993, and I visited companies in the Shinju Science Park for Electronic Business Asia magazine. I interviewed John Schwan, who was the president of UMC, and a couple of other executives, one from Winbond and another from a fabulous chipmaker. And that's when I also met C.Y. Lu, the head of Taiwan's Submicron project, who you'll hear from later in this podcast. C.Y. also kindly wrote the foreword to the Chinese version of my book, Silicon Shield. So, Alan, you've lived in Taiwan for more than 30 years. So who were some of the early, earliest Taiwan chip makers that you interviewed? I would say probably the first one was actually uh, Morris Chong uh, with TSMC. It was uh, quite an interesting experience. One of the things that I recall was that uh, he made me a cup of tea and uh, then served me a little uh, treat along with the tea. And now thinking back from that time on, Morris became sort of a, uh, a rock star. And whenever he appeared in public events, he was thronged by members of the press. And uh, he, he most of the time just brushed off uh, the questions from the press. So it, it was really striking to me that uh, I, I had this wonderful opportunity early on to just sit down with Morris and do a fairly detailed interview with him. Uh, of course, at that time, TSMC was quite an unknown company. Uh, th- this was back in the uh, early 90s, and m- most people really scoffed at, at the whole idea of TSMC, which was to make chips for other chip makers. I think most of the people in the industry at that time, they thought that it wasn't going anywhere. You also interviewed Morris uh, many years later for the Computer History Museum and SEMI, which is a, a project I was working on, and that was in 2007. We do have some clips from Morris, so uh, we'll, we'll play those. How much of a gamble was it for Taiwan to enter the semiconductor industry through the uh, RCA Tech Transfer Program? And how much credit do you think the political leaders uh, in Taiwan deserve for that? Well, the political leaders deserve all the credit for uh, getting the RCA license. But uh, that didn't mean that uh, Taiwan entered the semiconductor industry. Uh, All it meant, this license of RCA, all it meant was that uh, Taiwan got the then RCA current technology, which was probably a generation behind the leading technology in the U.S. then. Now, after Taiwan got it, they brought it back to Taiwan, and they, had, they continued to work on it in the laboratory, you know, small scale. It was not the production. They licensed the technology from RCE in 1975, and uh, in 1980, 
which was five years later, uh, they spun off uh, uh, a company. And uh, so uh, uh, that company, of course, used uh, the technology to some extent. Mm -hmm. Then uh, seven years later, 1987, TSMC was started. In the 12 years, they managed to get another generation behind. So by, by, by 1987, the Itchy technology was already two and a half generations behind the leading technology. And I mean, that's understandable because um, first of all, uh, the, uh, first of all, RCA was not uh, a first tier semiconductor company. Uh, and secondly, Without uh, a real commercial base, uh, the Itri people, you know, certainly was limited in, in improving the technology, in keeping up with the pace uh, that uh, other companies that are commercial companies, companies like Intel and TI and so on, and they set the pace and Itri couldn't keep up the, with the pace. So did you notice something in there, uh, Alan, when Morris was talking about the government transferring the technology to another company in, in 1980, I believe, he, he didn't mention the company, which was UMC, because that was started before TSMC. You know, he just couldn't even uh, bear to mention his rival's name in that interview that you did in 2007. Right, yeah, that really did stand out, I think. In UMC's case, uh, there, there's always been this sort of I think it's fair to say bitter animosity between uh, Bob Tsao and, and Morris Zhang. I think Bob, uh, he really wanted more to be credited with the idea of starting a foundry. And in, in fact, UMC did start earlier than TSMC, but it wasn't entirely, I, I think UMC's business plan wasn't quite so clear as TSMC's. They were making their own products, but then they were also doing foundry work. Uh, but despite all that, I think Bob wanted to take credit for the foundry idea, which, I mean, in fact, is not really all that original. I mean, even uh, U.S. fabs were doing foundry work uh, back in the day. You know, when there was, whenever there was excess capacity, they, they also... Uh, made chips for other companies, but that it was always sort of a sideline. It, it wasn't really, you know, a business plan the way uh, TSMC uh, did it. Morris uh, gets much of the credit, if not all of the credit, for making TSMC a success, but he had quite a bit of help. There's an interesting speech that he gave to the DataQuest conference. I think it was back in 1987. You can find the transcript of that on the Computer History Museum website. And he said, this is a quote from Morris from his speech, TSMC has been in operation for half a year now. It has 250 employees. We have recruited a top management team that is predominantly American. And then he goes on to say that Jim Dykes, who was the former GM at GE Semiconductor, was the president and CEO, and Klaus Wiemer, VP of operations, and Steve Pletcher. Those guys were running it in the early days, and I'm sure you may have had some contact with some of them, Klaus Wiemer, for example. Yes, yes. I met Klaus a few times. And, and the reason, of course, that they needed the help of the Americans was because this new concept of foundry, obviously you had to know how to make chips, but 
you had to sell them and that was the you know it wasn't a captive market like an idm and uh, i think the last american to to uh be at tsmc was don brooks he actually ran fairchild in the 1980s he retired from tsmc in 97 now there's an interesting interview that he did with the uh the stanford university silicon genesis project and he's he tells the, the story of leaving tsmc and apparently he was supposed to go to the u.s to run the, the operation there, the TSMC operation there. But then Morris Chung changed his mind and, and he ended up kind of pushing Don out. He was going to retire, but then two months later he turns up at UMC as the co-CEO of the US operation. So that must have really ticked off Morris. Just getting back to maybe some of the other guys that you talked to in the early days, I remember you told me that uh, uh, M.K. Tsai, who's now the, the head of MediaTek, was one of them. Was he still at UMC back then? I guess he was. Uh, yes, he was. Uh, UMC had a uh, chipset uh, division. In other words, they were, they were designing uh, chipsets that went around the Intel CPUs in, in a computer. And that, that was quite a substantial business for uh, UMC back in the day. I believe at one time they were, UMC was probably the second or perhaps even the number one ch- chipset manufacturer for PCs. And MK was, was the person in charge of, of that division in, inside UMC. This is a segue into the next uh, segment because MK Tsai was one of the original uh, Taiwan engineers who were trained by RCA in the 1970s when, when the Taiwan government paid licensing f- money to get the CMOS technology. One of the other guys in that group was Shinte Shu, who at, uh, in a later stage became the head of ITRI, and he was interviewed for the Silicon Shield documentary in 2007. So let's hear uh, Shinte Shu talk about the actual events that led up to that uh, transfer and, and how it went. Brainstorming session was in the uh... Uh, uh, breakfast uh, store, uh, Minister Sun and uh, Dr. Pan and a few other very key person that will have a, a very simple breakfast. And they uh, come out, this may be a good idea. Why don't you write the proposal? So Dr. Pan uh, stay in the Grand Hotel and uh, spend a few, uh, few days there and uh, draw out this uh, original proposal. At the beginning, they sent out something like more than 20 requests for proposal. And um, uh, about a few of them response. So the final risk get down to a, a few, like a two or three. Okay. Uh, I think RCA was at that time uh, offered the, the, the program, not only the uh, technology, but also the training. I think the training uh, part of the uh, proposal was probably uh, uh, a key for their selection. They've been selected. The entire project from RCA is about 3.5 million US dollars. While we were at uh, uh, universities, we were thinking about, uh, you know, looking for some job. We heard some news about the concept, not very clear. It's just a very vague idea that government may be doing some project related to the semiconductor. I, I actually came back from United States, uh, in 1976 and joined on, uh, joined in this first group, uh, of, uh, 
you know, people to go to the U.S. to receive the technology. At that time, um, uh, there's uh, really not many people that uh, had experience in the semiconductor uh, uh, wafer processing because at that time there was no industry in Taiwan. So they uh, recruit people that are uh, from u university or they have some experience in, in the, um, you know, related industry. Okay. Not really the same kind of industry. And also recruit some people back from U.S. And so three of us, uh, D.Y. Yang, myself and C.C. Chiang, we were classmates at Princeton University. Three of us all came back and joined that project. We had, uh, a big responsibility to set up the whole thing in Taiwan and also make sure that it would, uh, the line would uh, run smoothly and come out a good result. So we were sort of eager and excited, but also were very uh, nervous about, you know, the end result, what would come out because it, it, it's a, was a very long process. It takes uh, quite a long, long time, like a, a month or so. Uh, so, so you really don't know what would come out at the end. So we are very, very, really, very excited, uh, uh, when the first uh, wafer came out and the result was really, really exciting. Of course, we have some expectation, but uh, I don't think, uh, anybody was very clear that how it would develop into, you know, a, a really, uh, a major uh, uh, industry. I think we knew it's important, but I, I don't think everybody dreamed that it would become such a big industry in Taiwan. Yeah, during the interview uh, with Shin Tae, I also asked him if he had any personal anecdotes about the experience, and this is what he said. Most of the engineers at the time that were sent to the United States, they have never been outside of Taiwan before. So first they have to overcome the the culture differences, the, uh, the, uh, eating habits, something like that. I was the leader of uh, a small group that were assigned to, uh, learn how to make the chip. So I was, uh, assigned to a very small town in Ohio. We rent a two apartment and we all uh, live together. Um, only I can drive a car. Okay, for the whole group. So we have to lease a big van that can can uh, take everybody uh, to the facility. You know, because uh, I'm the only driver, so we have to go in and out all together. We go to shopping together and go to any places together, and, unless you want to stay home and watch TV. So Alan, you can probably relate to that, uh, the cultural differences that Shintai was talking about but in the reverse direction. What kind of cultural shock did you experience when you came to Taiwan as an American back probably what, in the late 80s, I guess? Yeah, I, I came here during the uh, martial law era. And uh, at that time, Taiwan, you, you could just see a lot of poverty in, in Taiwan. I, of course, was just a poor student. I, I had basically no money, but fortunately for me, a uh, local family kind of took me under their wing. Thanks to them, I was able to continue my studies. Ar around that time, I became very interested in reading Chinese newspapers as part of my studies as a Chinese language student. I recall reading some articles about how 
Taiwan was planning to start a semiconductor industry. And I, I just could not believe my eyes. I thought, what? This, this place where the thing that really s- struck me the most was just uh, how poor the, the island was. And, and here they're trying to start a semiconductor industry. I, I became very interested in reading these reports in the news. And, and that was kind of how I got my leg up as a uh, journalist covering the uh, semiconductor industry in Taiwan. Okay, interesting. I didn't realize that. Actually, RCA also has its dark side in in, uh, Taiwan. At the time, I I believe RCA was probably the world's largest maker of color televisions. Uh, But they ran into a lot of problems in the United States with environmental uh, regulations, and they decided to move their production. Not only did they have environmental problems, but they had problems with... uh, the workers on their assembly lines. And I, I know this quite well because they moved out of a town where I was going to school, uh, which is Bloomington, Indiana, where Indiana University is. Um, they moved a lot of their production from there to Taiwan. And in Taiwan, at the time, there was this very lax uh, enforcement of environmental regulations. I think most of the people in the government turned a blind eye to that. So you had RCA using all of these uh, volatile solvents to clean their printed circuit boards. They were dumping all of these solvents into the ground. Uh, but not only that, apparently they had buckets of this in, in the factory, and the workers were using it to clean their clothes and to wash their hands, and it, it got into the drinking water. A lot of these people years later were, were getting different kinds of cancer, liver cancer. I, I met uh, quite a few of them who even to this day are still struggling to get some sort of compensation. And all of this took place right around the same time when uh, RCA was transferring its uh, semiconductor technology to Taiwan. And of course, there's no proof of this, but I, I often wondered whether RCA used this transfer of semiconductor technology to Taiwan as a way of sort of excusing themselves from culpability in this in this uh, horrible contamination issue that they were involved in in Taiwan. Yeah, interesting theory. Yeah. Well, anyway, let's let's move on, and uh, we have another uh, Taiwan chip warrior, CY Lu, who I met on my very first trip in 1993. Now, he was not a part of the original RCA team, but he was in charge of disseminating the technology to industry uh, because he was the general manager of ERSO, the Electronic Research Service Organization, under ITRI. And uh, later, he became the head of Taiwan's Submicron project. So let's just listen to uh, CY Lu's uh, perspective on this. Talking about uh, just licensing uh, to make things uh, really successful, the details and the, the way to implement is very, very important. So uh, in Taiwan case, they, they, they have done many uh, right things for my observation. They also uh, have a chance to get from this licensor the know-how, really know-how, and the know-why. So they get the, the base such that, based on this, they can step forward. So after that licensing, 
also each in a submicron stage, they, we can uh, develop our own without uh, further, further, every time you need to license, every time you need to license. RCA at that time is not in the best IC company in the United States. But, you know, uh, I think for a technology license, not necessarily the best one for you to license is uh, the most smart idea. The most smart idea is uh, if you can find a teacher who can really teach you. I think RCA is a really a good teacher. He teach Taiwan how to do uh, manufacture, how to do development, even doing, you know, how about the uh, cost accounting, how to do the promotion and the marketing and all those things. So this is a very complete uh, and successful technology transfer. For those uh, company at that time, there's no motivation for them to find a partner to transfer technology to, to Taiwan, especially Yichui Erso. This is a very interesting, unique organization because their mission is diffusion technology within Taiwan, right? So if you work with them, your technology diffusion to maybe 100 companies, not just one, Yichui doesn't produce, right? Theoretically, they do some uh, pilot manufacture, but uh, their mission is to distribute your technology. So when RCA project started, actually only a few leaders are returning Chinese, okay? And then they are also fresh hand, just graduate from school, no experience, almost no experience, a little bit extra, maybe one year working in, in US. Very difficult to attract uh, the talent. We have a brand drain and the, the top student, almost 100% go out to the United States and study there for their advanced study and then stay there for their life. Okay. So at that time, it, it is very difficult. But still, there are some uh, good talent remain. So on the, the RCA project, the Urso E-Tree, even when I lead some micron project, I have uh, 300 members. Maybe only less than five is a returning U.S. We we actually still using the local local uh, talent. Later on, the, the industry very successful. The the compensation overall compensation with uh, the the salary plus the uh, bonus plus the, the profit sharing actually is better than those guys can get in U.S. Okay, so certainly this is homeland. This is no glass ceiling for them. You can, uh, if you have idea, you have uh, pretty much chance to be CEO to uh, try your own ideas. So at that time, in the late 90s, plenty of uh, uh, overseas Taiwanese returning to Taiwan. Say myself, I, I see this is an opportunity I couldn't get in US. The US national project will not hire me to lead the Semitech, right? Semitech CEO will not be me. <laughs> Even I'm very successful in Bell Laboratories, but I have chance to try in Taiwan. So even I cut my salary by 50%, 
I, I choose this, okay? Because this is a choice. I also believe that you've interviewed CY quite a number of times, Alan. Any stories to tell? Yeah, CY was a, a great source of information on how the Taiwan semiconductor industry was was actually, you know, developing against a lot of the expectations of of people outside Taiwan. And you know, he he was running this huge government project to uh, actually bring Taiwan's uh, technology on a par with the rest of the world. And and at one point, I think maybe a year or two into this, he, he said to me, Alan, you know what I'm really trying to do here? I'm trying to put myself out of a job uh, because, you know, if if I'm able to make myself redundant, I know that I've actually done my job well. And at one point, he, he really said that he felt like there was nothing more that the uh, submicron project could do because uh, the uh, you know the commercial chip makers like TSMC and UMC had you know they had more money than the government had to invest in in R and D. I thought it was interesting in that clip from CY where he said even though he worked at Bell Labs, he would never have the opportunity to lead the national team in the U.S., be head of Semitech and so forth. I'm just wondering, uh, there's the case of uh, Jiang Shangyi, who was the uh, top R&D guy at TSMC, and after he retired, he went to China, and he uh, ran that HSMC fab there which uh, in Wuhan, which went bankrupt, and now he's at SMIC. But uh, I understand he's an American citizen and has a lot of connections in the U.S., so I'm wondering why he chose to go to China after leaving TSMC, as opposed to maybe going to the U.S. and saying, I'll help you guys get Foundry started here, and TSMC has, has got its uh, project in Arizona. So you've um, met him and talked to him, Alan. What do you think? Well, I mean, th- this is all kind of speculation here, but I've heard from other TSMC insiders that uh, Zhang, he, he was the head of uh, R&D at TSMC, uh, about let's say a, a decade ago, a very senior guy. Uh, actually, you know, he, he should be given a lot of the credit. Uh, you know, what where TSMC is today. You know, they're they're now the world's in terms of technology. They have the world's most advanced production technology, right? And apparently, when the time came for promotions, he was passed over and. Perhaps that has something to do with his age. Who knows what the reason was? But apparently he felt kind of unhappy that uh, he was passed over. And there, there is some, I think, some bad blood uh, probably between him and, and Morris. Uh, but, but that may not be the only reason. Quite, quite a few people inside TSMC and, and, of course, in the Taiwan semiconductor industry in general, are um, mainland Chinese by by origin, so I think a lot of a lot of these people would like to see China become a success in the same way that Taiwan became a success in the semiconductor industry. Well, there's also the the earlier uh, wave of guys, uh, Richard Chung and Winston Wong, who who I think you've also interviewed, who went over in the you know 10, 15 years ago 
did you get any insight from those earlier guys as to you know their motivations for going to china to set up fabs yeah richard i interviewed uh, several times, he started a, a foundry in competition with TSMC, which was later acquired. And he said to me that he did not want to work for his competition. But uh, at the same time, Richard also said that he was approached by some people who said to him, look, we don't like the idea of making chips in Taiwan. There are just too many sort of geopolitical risks here. You know, Taiwan is a is a uh, nation that is not really recognized in the rest of the world. You know, it, it has a lot of political risk. Uh, so according to him, a lot of people in the semiconductor industry said, hey, let's let's go to a place where, you know, there's none of this political risk and, and there's a lot more potential, i.e. China. And, and so, according to him, with the help of some other people in, in the uh, semiconductor industry, uh, he was able to set up SMIC in, in China. Speaking of a uh, Taiwan-China rivalry, uh, your book, uh, your latest book, which is called China's Next Target, Taiwan, uh, there was a particular chapter that I thought was very interesting where you interviewed some people, I think they were from TSMC, just talking about how they, when they're with the mainland colleagues, they kind of avoid talking about politics. And I thought that's sort of an interesting dynamic there. Right. This, this person is, is a friend, so I don't want to do anything to reveal the person's identity. This person works inside a, a TSMC fab. But during the course of the conversation, uh, this person commented about some of the uh, Chinese colleagues who are working inside this uh, TSMC fab. I thought that was interesting for a number of reasons. One, one of which was, you know, the potential for uh, intellectual property or trade secrets or, you know, though that sort of valuable information to leak out of TSMC. This is a big issue for TSMC, you know, the current co-CEO of, of SMIC in China is a former TSMC employee. That's uh, Liang Mengsong. The guy that also allegedly leaked secrets to Samsung before he went to SMIC. Yeah, that, w that was a huge hemorrhage of, of uh, TSMC uh, uh, trade secrets. And, and now this person is the co-CEO at uh, SMIC. But he's sort of the tip of the iceberg. There are plenty of other people who have left TSMC and MediaTek and, and a lot of these other chip companies uh, to work for, for companies in China. But what was particularly striking to me in this interview that I did with this friend is that the potential here, it's not just from top level executives who are leaving TSMC, but it's also with engineers who, from China who are actually working in TSMC fabs. I mean, to me, I think that's a, that's a huge risk, and I'm not so sure how well TSMC is managing that risk. Yeah, you also mentioned the, the, the political aspect of this. Uh, you, you have Taiwanese engineers sitting down with uh, Chinese engineers 
and, and talking about political issues, you know, like the uh, Muslim situation where, where people are forced into uh, indoctrination camps, uh, that, that sort of thing. And this person said to me that occasionally that, that sort of a subject would come up, you know, and the, the Chinese engineers would get very angry about that. And so just in order to in, avoid any sort of argument, they understood that that was sort of a red line that uh, they, they wouldn't cross. Yeah, okay, very interesting. Before we end, um, we would be remiss not to mention the Taiwan chip warrior who started it all. And he was mentioned by Shinte Sher at the beginning, and that's Dr. Pan Wenyuan, who was actually uh, worked at RCA in the US for 30 years uh, as a researcher and engineer. Another uh, person who was interviewed for the Silicon Shield documentary, uh, Professor Li J. Chen uh, at National Tsinghua University, told the story of uh, Pan Wenyuan. And I've got a clip of that here, which we'll play. The prime ministers uh, has uh, advisors in science, and the representative figures is Dr. Pan Wenyuan, and he was a chief scientist at RCA, a real expert in semiconductors, and he formed a technical advisory committee uh, which was composed of scientists and engineering uh, working in US in semiconductors uh, as an advisory body for the government. Under the leadership of Dr. Pan, they recommended to the government of Taiwan that semiconductor is an area which uh, Taiwan should uh, try to develop. With many factors combined, I think it's, uh, you can call it a miracle that uh, it comes into the major driving force for economic development for the next uh, 20, 30 years. Okay, well, that's, uh, that's the end of the podcast, and I hope you found it interesting, and I'd like to thank Alan very much for his uh, insight, uh, very interesting stories about... Uh, the Taiwan ship warriors going back to the late 80s uh, on the ground there, seeing it all happen. So thanks, Alan, for your uh, participation. My pleasure, Craig, and, and thanks very much for your endorsement of my book. Thank you for listening to The Chip Warriors, written and produced by Craig Addison, based on interviews he conducted between 2004 and 2008. And please support this project by subscribing to the premium episodes.